Preserving judgments is a matter of infinite hope. Reserving judgments is a matter of infinite hope. This tiny compact quote appears in the opening pages of Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby, and it has acted as a guiding principle for me in my teaching, in my writing, in my critiquing, and in my interpersonal relationships. Reserving judgments is a matter of infinite hope. My students are probably tired of this quote at this point. I teach a critical thinking and composition course at VCU, and when I teach my students writing process theory, I caution them to initially turn the personality of their inner judge off. Let her, that unforgiving judge, sit in the dark for a bit while you, in the light, dream about the creative potential of the slot you've drafted on the page. For we begin any writing process with a combination of slop and potential gems. We begin with mistakes, with delightful surprises, with detours, with exploration with these attempts at something beautiful that are sometimes not all that beautiful. <laughs> in fact, the word essay is derived from the French word essay, which means to attempt, to try. Consequently, in the constructive criticism that I provide for my students, I do acknowledge what doesn't seem to be working in their initial writing slop, but mostly I try to emphasize what does work. Knowing from experience that writers are timid and easily frightful creatures, <laughs> I don't want to scare them into tossing in the towel altogether. I don't want them to crumble up a piece of prose that might have contained the beginnings, the seeds of something rare and delightful. Instead, I try to focus on the good, hoping that the good will expand and drive out the not-so-good. I introduce this Gatsby quote in this teaching anecdote because I believe that they are somewhat relatable to our passage for today. In this passage, Jesus cautions us to not pull out the weeds too quickly, lest we pull out some of the wheat accidentally in the process. Instead, he asks that we wait until the final harvest, and preferably the final judgment, for that sorting to be done, and for it to be done, as he later interprets of the parable, by the wisdom of sorting angels. In the writing process, this could be mean um, waiting until you've gotten to the end of a first draft or a first sitting with a piece before beginning your critique, before slicing it up and seeing what works and what doesn't. This kind of waiting is tricky for perfectionists like me, but in the end, it's fairly innocuous, fairly harmless. But what does this type of waiting mean for us in life? What does it mean for us in a world in which ingrained and systemic evils lead to lowered standards of living for our sisters and our brothers? Maybe I should begin by saying what I don't think this passage means for us. I don't think this passage means that God wants us to make allowances for evil acts. Other teachings of Jesus would undoubtedly resist that interpretation. Throughout the Gospels, we see Christ as one zealous about the removal of evil from our world. He overturns the tables in the temple that make a manipulative and capitalistic mockery of his father's house of worship. He urges those tempted to sin to metaphorically cut away the parts of themselves that they know lead them to do it. He urges us to be open to the pruning attentiveness of the all-knowing vine dresser who removes from us what does not produce fruit, 
so that the parts of us that do produce it will thrive and flourish even more. What I hear in those teachings of Jesus is a theme echoed in the prophets and in the Psalms. God wants his people to resist systems of injustice. We hear this in Isaiah 58. Remove the chains of oppression and the yoke of injustice. God also wants his people to be open, always open, to his cleansing, always internally discerning as we hear in Psalm 51. Remove my sin and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. The psalmist pleads with his God. But these same psalms also warn us, as St. Peter's parishioner, Miss Mary Thompson, warned me through Psalm 37 this weekend. Vengeance is not ours. We are to be faithful to making daily attempts at living into goodness, at spreading his goodness and justice, while we leave the final judgments to God. If I were to distill this parable to his essential revelation about us and about God, I would say that it communicates two things. On the one hand, it says of us that we are faulty judges, too quick to trash what could be of value, too impatient to believe that we don't need to wait for discernment. When discussing this passage during St. Peter's Bible study a few weeks ago, my good friend Lindsay Goodrich Comline, who's recently taken to gardening, noted that she has had to wait to weed her garden. She has had to wait to weed because she doesn't yet understand all of the differences between weeds and the wanted plants when they are so young. Rather than rashly pulling, she's had to do research. She's had to seek to understand the differences. I think that Lindsay's analogy becomes an important reminder to us. How quick are we, particularly in this cultural moment, to make assumptions about the nature of others, about their intentions, about their origins, about the contours of their life. Are we willing to do research, the research that comes through open conversation? Are we seeking to know the depths of a person more than we are seeking to be right in our judgments of that person? What this passage says about us is that we tend towards faulty judgments. What this passage asks of us is that we reserve them. But now what does this passage say of God? I believe that it says that he is more merciful than we could imagine. That he does not want one speck of good, not one lost coin, not one wayward sheep in whom he planted the seed of his unadulterated goodness to vanish from this earth. This scripture makes me think a bit about the life of Herbert Richardson, a man on death row who was executed in 1989, but whose story was thankfully preserved in Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy. In one scene in the film adaptation of Just Mercy, Stevenson, a lawyer and advocate for death row inmates, talks with Richardson before his execution. You see, Richardson was convicted of capital murder in 1978. It was an inadvertent murder, but it was a murder he was responsible for nonetheless. After serving in Vietnam, Richardson returned plagued with PTSD, chronic headaches, an array, and an array of psychiatric distress. His erratic plan to win back a girl he loved 
led to the murder of an innocent bystander. But in the scene that I mentioned, as Stevenson sits across from Richardson, Richardson expresses his fear that there's nothing left that can be done for his death row case, nothing left that can be done for his life. Stevenson responds back, there's always something that we can do. Whatever you did, he, said to, he says to Richardson, your life is meaningful and I'm going to do whatever I can to keep them from taking it. The end of our parable warns us of a judgment to come. And whether you believe in a literal heaven or hell becomes a bit inconsequential to me as I ponder the motivations of the benevolent heart of God that stirs in this passage. For we walk with a God who, like Stevenson, always believes in the potential for redemption before judgment. As Richardson walked to the execution chamber, he listened to the hymn, The Old Rugged Cross from a Cassette Player. This hymn reminds us, of course, of the pardon of Christ and his sanctifying power to rid us of sin. His miraculous power that knows no material limits. His ability to, if you would allow me to say this, convert the structure of a harmful weed into the fruitfulness of wheat. Because of the justice systems of man, Richardson's life did end on that day. It ended prematurely before the still intact meaning of his life could have another chance. But his blessed story, one that made me cry the first time I heard it, should prompt us, should prompt us all. Do you believe now, brothers and sisters, that every person on this earth could be wheat? Do you believe of your enemies of those who have harmed you even, of those that live in a way that harms others, that they too should be spared in the hope that they could become better than what they are someday? Or do you rashly uproot as you wage the battle, an appropriate battle, with the real and present evil in this world? Do you hope that the causes of evil would vanish, or do you hope that people who do evil would be punitively damned for all eternity. In plainer language, do you want irreparable harm to come on your enemies? Or do you always hold on to the infinite hope that there is some good in them, some wheat in them, and that possibly one day they too will be made by the mercy of God to shine like the righteous? Today I give thanks for the just but gentle vine dresser, the benevolent, the wise, the divine long-suffering father or mother who comes to cut us free from the cluttered evils that halt our future growth. I give thanks for the Holy One who cuts off the arm to preserve the person. I give thanks for the fact that my own life with its weeds and with its wheat is spared daily from the fires of destruction. And I pray now, or I try to pray now, for those who have harmed me, for those who have harmed you, and for those who continue to harm us. Lord of miracles, turn their weeds into wheat. For you remind us that reserving judgments is a matter of infinite hope.
Amen.